0: Chronic hepatitis C, or HCV, is an important public health concern. Over the past few years, the landscape for HCV treatment has continued to change at a rapid pace. New clinical practice guidelines are needed to keep physicians informed of the latest evidence. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm speaking with two of the authors of a guideline update from the Canadian Association for the Study of the Liver that's recently published in CMAJ. Dr. Heyman Shaw is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto and Clinical Director at the Toronto Centre for Liver Disease, And Dr. Jordan Feld is is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto and Clinician Scientist and Research Director at the Toronto Centre for Liver Disease. I've reached them both in Toronto. Hello.
1: Hi, Diane. Hi, Diane.
0: We're thrilled to have you with us today. My first question is actually for Heyman. What is the burden of chronic hepatitis C virus in Canada? Is the prevalence declining or is it increasing?
2: That's a great question, Diane. Uh, hepatitis C is a highly burdensome public health problem in Canada, which actually causes more years of life loss than any other infectious disease in the country. This may be surprising to readers who might wonder, well, what is the connection between hepatitis C and morbidity and mortality? It's actually because hepatitis C is one of the import- most important causes of Advanced liver disease and specifically cirrhosis uh, in the country, with many complications following that, including liver failure, liver cancer and the need for liver transplant. The number of infected individuals in Canada uh, is slightly disputed, but is in the range of 250 to 350,000 Canadians. The most recent data in Canada uh, would suggest that perhaps the prevalence is declining. However, with a recent spike in opioid use and an increasingly worrisome opioid epidemic in this country and others, there actually might be some errors in that data, such that the true prevalence may actually be increasing. And we have seen this uh, mirrored in some publications in the United States. So overall, hepatitis C is extremely uh, burdensome, and these guidelines, I think, are quite relevant for the country.
0: Now, Jordan, the last Canadian guideline on the management of HCV from your group was published just a few years ago in 2015. Why was there a need for a new one so soon?
1: Thanks, Diane. Well, it's amazing to consider that it was just a couple of years ago that the last guidelines came out because in the world of hepatitis C, that seems like a generation ago. The field has moved really at a phenomenally rapid pace um, going from our old treatments that required interferon and ribavirin uh, with very low cure rates, very high side effect profiles and really not an ability to be used in a a broad manner, uh, to the very rapid development of new oral therapies that are extremely well-tolerated, have very high cure rates, and this has really changed the paradigm for treating hepatitis C. And one of the reasons that we not only wanted to update the guidelines, because so much has changed since 2015, but that we particularly wanted it to be available to a broader uh, audience of clinicians, and that's why we were pleased to publish this in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, because as we'll discuss today, to address hepatitis C, we're going to need to move out of uh, treating this only in specialty clinics and start to involve a broader population of caregivers, including primary care physicians, internists, addiction specialists, and nurse practitioners uh, who are now more than able uh, to treat individuals with hepatitis C, and we're going to need their help if we're going to address this at the public health level.
0: Now, Heyman, Jordan's already sort of alluded a little bit to the scope of this guideline. Sounds like the guideline is for a pretty broad range of specialists. Can you tell me more about the scope of the guideline?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this guideline really was written to assist physicians, uh, not just specialists, but also including primary care, as Jordan uh, alluded to, as well as other healthcare professionals, including nurse practitioners, nurses, and physician assistants in the management of adult patients with chronic hepatitis C uh, infection. This guideline focuses mainly on treatment recommendations. Uh, However, The readers will notice that there is a fair amount of preamble on uh, pre-treatment testing, uh, some public health considerations, and post-treatment monitoring. But the scope is really around management of treatment of hepatitis C for really all of the patient populations uh, that we encounter, with the one exception being individuals who are co-infected with HIV, for which there's already a... uh, very well written Canadian guideline.
0: So now, Jordan, let's start with screening. Now, this is a little bit controversial. The Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare recently published a guideline in CMAJ in which they recommended against screening the baby boomer cohort. Now, your guideline panel strongly disagreed with that recommendation. So, what are you recommending for screening and testing, and why is your recommendation different from that of the Canadian Task Force?
1: Thanks, Diane. I think this is really an important point to discuss. It is a it is a, a key uh, difference about this guideline from what the Preventative Task Force came out with. And I, I guess I'll start by just saying that the Preventative uh, Healthcare Task Force came out with a recommendation to suggest that we should not do screening in those who are at low risk of hepatitis C infection. And And I think most of us would certainly agree with that recommendation. The challenge is that we're not very good at recognizing who's at low risk. So if we could, that would be a great strategy to follow. But we've had a policy of using so-called risk-based screening for many years now. And unfortunately, the most recent data in Canada would suggest that our diagnosis rate is very low and that somewhere between 45 and 70% of those living with hepatitis C in Canada have not been diagnosed. So it's really just a challenge to to recognize that if we've been using risk factor based screening, and it has led to a a diagnosis rate below 50%, we probably need a new strategy. So that's why I think we were a little disappointed to see the task force recommend to continue with the old strategy uh, that that hasn't worked very well. So why have we thought about uh, testing the birth cohort or the baby boomer cohort? The reason for this is pretty simple um, that People living with hepatitis C, by and large, fall into that birth cohort. So somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of those living with hepatitis C in Canada are born between the years 1945 and 1975. And so it's it's a simple way to approach screening rather than trying to address risk factors, which people may not be aware of may not be comfortable disclosing, and that could come from the patient or the provider. Uh, a simpler strategy is to address it at a, with a more population-based focus where, based on someone's uh, age demographic, it's recommended that they're screened for hepatitis C in the same way we screen for things like blood pressure, high cholesterol, colon cancer, etc. And th- this is also importantly non-stigmatizing. It, it doesn't associate hepatitis C re- uh, testing with a specific risk factors. It's also easier to implement because you don't necessarily necessarily... necessarily need to know and recognize and acknowledge risk factors that may have led to hepatitis C acquisition. And I, I guess I would also point out that the, the task force raised a few key concerns. One was having access to treatment for those who do get diagnosed through screening and also the cost of treatment. And I think these are important considerations and, and well thought out by the task force. But fortunately, actually, since the, that publication of uh, the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance or the PCPA, which is a national body uh, aiming to um, negotiate better prices on pharmaceuticals, has been able to develop uh, guidelines for much lower cost of acquisition for the hepatitis C drugs, which are still expensive, but much less so than they were. And as a consequence of this, many of the provinces and other jurisdictions in Canada have increased access. So for example, now in Ontario, anyone living with chronic hepatitis C can access uh, hepatitis C treatment. So I think many of the concerns that the task force raised have now been addressed by the new Uh, the new costs of the therapies and broader access. And given that, um, it is actually using a baby boomer approach. The reason we've recommended this is well carried out modeling studies have shown that testing the baby boomer cohort and treating those who are infected is cost effective. And those studies were actually done using the older high costs of the therapies and also lower estimates for the prevalence than a more recent estimates suggest. So with lower costs and higher prevalence of disease, it's actually likely that it's even more cost effective and may even be cost saving. So Hopefully, our strategy will increase the diagnosis rate, get more people into care, get them cured, and prevent the long-term complications of this disease, which, as Hamid outlined, has an enormous public health burden in the country.
0: And for interested listeners, uh, two of the modeling studies were published in CMAJ group journals, one in CMAJ itself and another one in CMAJ Open. So uh, you can check those out. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the costs of drugs being lowered. Um, So, Heyman, moving on to treatment, Um, this obviously has an impact on which patients should be considered for antiviral therapy.
2: Yes, indeed. And uh, in this guideline, we make the recommendation that all patients uh, with chronic hepatitis C infection should be considered candidates uh, for antiviral therapy. And whereas in the past there were a number of Uh, relative and absolute contraindications to hepatitis C treatment. We have made the move away from any contraindications to hepatitis C treatment uh, and would recommend everyone uh, be eligible for therapy. Uh, I think the two groups uh, to highlight that would probably not be uh, appropriate for treatment despite this recommendation would include uh, women who are pregnant as there hasn't been demonstrated safety of uh, the treatments in that group, and individuals who have another uh, life-limiting diagnosis where they they may uh, have a uh, imminent demise from, but other than that, everyone is a is a candidate and an appropriate candidate for antiviral therapy.
0: So, Jordan, when, when a physician is going to has identified a patient uh, with HCV, what are some of the pre-treatment evaluations or assessments that physicians should perform or order?
1: This is an important consideration. I think when we've moved to these very effective therapies, sometimes the sense is, You can just see a patient with hep C and prescribe the drugs and they go on and take them and they'll be cured. And and fortunately for for many individuals, that is the case. But there still are some key things that need to be done before starting someone on therapy. And probably the most important one is to do some type of fibrosis assessment. So you need to know how severe the liver disease is. And fortunately, while we used to rely on things like liver biopsy, we now have a number of non-invasive tools to evaluate uh, the degree of liver fibrosis. And really the goal here is to rule out cirrhosis and some very simple tools using um, even just regularly ordered blood tests like the AST and the platelet count allow us to exclude cirrhosis and the reason this is important is that we need to know if someone has cirrhosis before they start treatment because that's going to determine their risk after treatment whether they need long term follow-up. So really the key is a fibrosis assessment. If the person doesn't have cirrhosis a few other things to consider are drug Drug interactions. Although the drugs are generally well-tolerated and safe, there are some important drug interactions to consider. And then, of course, the other comorbidities that the person may also have, and some key ones that need to be screened for in everyone, would be hepatitis B and HIV co-infection. But also, it's important to look at their overall health, as as Heyman mentioned. And, And even for people with cirrhosis, they can certainly be treated and they do very well with these therapies, but it's important to know if they have cirrhosis before treatment because these non invasive tools that I mentioned are not, they don't work nearly as well after someone's been cured to rule in or rule out cirrhosis. So they need to be done before starting treatment.
0: Now, Heyman, before getting into the actual treatment regimens that we're going to be talking about, you have a recommendation in the guideline about drugs not to use and which ones to use. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So we've been fortunate uh, in Canada that since 2014, we have seen the arrival of an entirely new class of therapies to treat chronic hepatitis C, commonly known as direct acting antiviral agents. These are oral medications uh, in tablet form that directly target uh, particular um, aspects of the hepatitis C life cycle. And compared to previously used treatments that were immunomodulatory in nature, uh, and I'm specifically referring here to interferon and injection-based therapy, These new treatments uh, are highly effective and much better tolerated for individual patients. So our recommendation here in the guidelines is that uh, all patients who receive treatment for hepatitis C now receive interferon-free direct-acting antiviral agent uh, regimens. Uh, And I think this is a tremendous paradigm shift in the management of hepatitis C, uh, enabled by really some Amazing science that that got us here, uh, and also hard work by policymakers to to get patients access to these medications. but I think that uh, we we no longer recommend the use of any injection uh, therapy, uh, interferon based therapy for hepatitis C.
0: which is obviously going to increase the likelihood that people will actually take these medications. I suspect absolutely. Now, Jordan, so what's interesting about treatment of hepatitis C is that the regimens are affected by the genotype. You have a detailed recommendations in the full guideline on our website at cmaj.ca, and we encourage listeners to go to it and take a look at, at the tables. But can you give us a hint about the, the important things we should know about this?
1: Sure. So, so hepatitis C comes in a in number of strains, typically six, but maybe even seven genotypes or strains of the virus. And although these are highly related, there are some uh, there are some differences and. What we learned early on with treating hepatitis C is that the different genotypes respond differently to therapies. And with our old therapies, genotype 1, which is the most common infection in Canada, um, was the most difficult to cure. So it was most common and hardest to get rid of. And so the, the new therapies initially were targeted primarily at genotype 1, but fortunately, over the last couple of years, what we have seen is what are called pangenotypic regimens or, or regimens that work across all of the different genotypes or strains of hepatitis C. Now, we still recommend in the guideline that people do genotype testing, and some would say, why do you need to do genotype testing if the drugs work across all genotypes? The reason is, is that even with these pan-genotypic regimens, there still are differences in the response rate by genotype. Um, And until they're exactly the same, so generally the success is still very high, but it's still useful to know the genotype because it may help guide um, the specific choice of one therapy over another. That being said, if someone wanted to use reliably pan-genotypic regimens, it would be reasonable, particularly in so called easy to to treat or easy to cure populations, those without cirrhosis and out, without other significant comorbidities, it would be reasonable to use a pan genotypic regimen and not really um, investigate the genotype in 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 any detail. However, if someone either doesn 't respond to treatment or has other things that may make them harder to cure, uh, the genotype can be quite important. And that's why, as you mentioned, we go into a lot of detail on on the subtleties of why one regimen may be preferred over another uh, for a specific genotype.
0: Now, Hamant, the guideline does talk about decompensated cirrhosis and some recommendations for that. Can you tell us a little bit about the recommendation um, in that area, but also perhaps start by saying what you mean by decompensated
2: cirrhosis? Sure. So the section on decompensated cirrhosis, uh, along with a few other sections on special populations in the guidelines, such as individuals with uh, chronic kidney disease, are new, um, in the 2018 update, and sections that we thought were very important to include because the changes in therapy have now allowed us to more easily uh, identify treatment regimens that can be effective in these populations. When we talk about decompensated cirrhosis, we're speaking about patients specifically who have demonstrated uh, clinical symptoms of liver failure, including ascites, uh, prior variceal bleeding, uh, jaundice, or hepatic encephalopathy. When treating these individuals, uh, what we recommend is, first of all, uh, to consider whether or not the severity of the liver disease is too high to actually um, warrant therapy. Uh, And what I mean by that is that some of these patients will benefit from therapy after a liver transplant as opposed to before it. And so that's something we explore in a bit more detail in the guidelines. Uh, The second is uh, what treatment regimens are appropriate for these individuals, and specifically we recommend against the use of all protease inhibitor based regimens because these drugs are hepatically metabolized uh, and they can accumulate to uh, toxic levels in patients with a, with significantly impaired hepatic function, uh, like decompensated individuals so uh, we would we have specific recommendations about treatment regimens and and thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, we make the point that you know While the treatment of hepatitis C has certainly been simplified uh, by many of the new treatment agents, these individuals with decompensated cirrhosis are still at risk of having uh, adverse events while on therapy. And so what we recommend is that treatment of decompensated cirrhosis should be done in uh, centers with expertise and uh, centers with high volume where there is access to liver transplant assessment.
0: So thank you. So Jordan, um, so a patient, you've identified a patient with hepatitis C, you've treated them. What kind of post-treatment should patients be offered
1: That's an important point. Uh, The treatment is is highly successful. We've talked about the fact that we can cure most individuals. And I'll just spend a a second talking about what we mean by cure. Um, We usually refer to this term sustained virological response, sometimes uh, with the acronym SVR. and, And that's defined as the virus being undetectable in the blood three months after the end of therapy. And the good thing is, this truly is a virological cure. So unlike other chronic viral infections, this isn't suppressed this isn't cure with quotation marks. This is really a cure. There's no virus left. The person has no risk of ongoing transmission. And the risk of the virus coming back and relapsing after that three-month mark is exceedingly low, well under 1%. So for people who have achieved this benchmark of SVR or virus undetectable three months after treatment, they are cured. And if they had no significant liver damage prior to treatment, they're really cured and don't need much in the way of any type of follow-up. So I mentioned before in the pre-treatment evaluation that it's really important to know if people have cirrhosis before you start treatment. And the reason for that is that although cure of the infection does reduce the risk of liver cancer, it does not eliminate the risk of cancer. So in those people with cirrhosis, prior to treatment, even if they achieve achieve sustained virological response, so they're hep C free, they still have a risk of liver cancer and it's still recommended that they undergo surveillance for liver cancer uh, with an ultrasound every six months because liver cancer is one of those cancers if we find it early, we can usually cure it. If we find it when people have symptoms from it, it's much too late to do anything about it. So those people need ongoing and at least as far as we know lifelong surveillance for liver cancer and the key point is that they need need that evaluation for cirrhosis before treatment, because as I mentioned, many of the tools to evaluate uh, liver fibrosis are not very accurate after the virus is gone. So for people with cirrhosis, ongoing surveillance, and then the other group that needs ongoing follow-up is people who are at risk for reinfection. Unfortunately, even if you've been cured of hepatitis C, you're not protected from getting reinfected. And so, people that continue to engage in high risk activities, for example, injection drug use, uh, they may be re exposed to hepatitis C and can be infected. And for those people, they need serial monitoring for hepatitis C RNA. So, you have to actually check for the virus level. Uh, The antibodies that are the first screening test for hepatitis C will remain positive in any individual who's infected lifelong. So even after they're cured, the antibodies will stay present. These antibodies do not protect you from reinfection. So for people at risk of reinfection, the only way to document it is by uh, checking the HCVRNA. So to quickly summarize, people with no advanced liver disease really need and at no risk of reinfection need no specific follow up. Those with cirrhosis need surveillance for liver cancer with ultrasounds every six months, and those at risk of reinfection uh, need surveillance. It's generally recommended to check their hepatitis C RNA level about once a year, maybe more often if they are engaged in very frequent high-risk activities.
0: Well, thank you, Jordan, for that, and thank you, Heymond. We've covered a lot of ground um, in this podcast. Are there any other pieces of information that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: We've talked a lot about treatment, and Heyman set the stage at the beginning by saying that the scope of our guideline focuses on treatment, but our our goals in the long term are broader than this, and we highlight this a little bit at the end of the document. The World Health Organization has called for the elimination of hepatitis C as a public health problem by the year 2030, and Canada has signed on to those uh, elimination targets. And to achieve that, we're going to need to do a lot more than treatment. Our new treatments certainly give us the tools to uh, target elimination, but elimination means a lot more than just treatment it means screening so identifying those people who have the infection getting them into care and then making sure that we stem the tide of new infections both primary new infections as well and reinfections. and that involves addressing a number of other issues particularly harm reduction around drug use Um, which is a major cause of transmission in Canada, and also addressing some of the social determinants of health uh, that have led to a high prevalence of hepatitis C in some uh, more disadvantaged populations. So I think... We can do this. We're going to need a national uh, strategy to address this. And I'm hopeful that over the next years, uh, we will be one of the countries uh, that achieves these WHO elimination targets and really reduces the burden of, of hepatitis C and eliminates it as a public health problem, hopefully before 2030.
0: Well, that's a really exciting way to end the podcast. When I am sure if we had had a conversation like this, even you know five or more years ago, we wouldn't have been able to be so positive. But certainly looking at the advances that have happened, it's really exciting to see that such a goal is actually uh, within our grasp. So thank you both so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for a pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Heyman Shah, Clinical Director at the Toronto Centre for Liver Disease, and Dr. Jordan Feld, Clinician Scientist and Research Director at the Toronto Centre for Liver Disease. To read the Canadian Association for the Study of the Liver Clinical Practice Guideline, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes and leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kalstall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.